0: section twelve of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain book one chapter twelve heroines of charles dickens's middle period i have compunctions which i am not sure i shall find just on examination for having passed over dickens's earlier books without mentioning certain of his womenkind who have found a place in our associations with his name or have achieved a sort of independent existence in proverb i mean such surcharged travesties as fanny squeers and tilly price and miss la creevy in nicholas nickleby such grotesques as sally brass in old curiosity shop and the elderly miss wardle in pickwick papers such frantic burlesques as abound in oliver twist but even if i were to hold myself to stricter account in cataloguing these than i have found necessary i should not feel justified in citing them as heroines and i hope not to have had a bad conscience in ignoring now and hereafter the innumerable freaks and monsters with which the author peoples his page and to which he wildly and whirlingly attributes the sex and nature of women one in any just sense there is no heroine in barnaby rudge which is a book of more skill and power than any that dickens had yet written we may dismiss without self-reproach such a lady-like lay-figure as emma haredale and a goblin effigy like miss miggs and come without delay to dolly varden who in turn need hardly delay us longer she is a cheap little coquette imagined upon the commonest lines with abundant assertion as to her good looks and graces but without evidence of the charm that the silliest flirt has in reality she is nothing and she does nothing and she cannot be petted and patted by her inventor with all his fondness into any semblance of personality dickens however had himself such potent charm that what he said went at least with his own generation and so dolly varden passed for a pretty girl such as in life knows how to snare the hearts of men and play with them and throw them away perhaps the falsest note in her was her supposed capability of deep regret for the love she had trifled with and a final constancy to it but we were told this was so and we obediently imagined it now that we have lived beyond the glamour of dickens's wonderful power it is incredible what things we were asked and made to believe by him it was like a kind of game such as children play together in which it is pretended that things are so and so without reference to any inherent probability or possibility and the power of the master of the revels was so great that when you came under his spell you were glad to be under it and did not question the means by which he worked his wonders any more than children do in playing a game it cannot be denied that he refined upon his means though the trick remained essentially the same as he wrote more and more but he was always and inalienably of the theatre and as one reads his novels now it is with an immense regret that he did not frankly make them plays his melodrama then might have seemed drama his stage scenery aspects of nature so much less would his faults have appeared in plays than they do in novels Two, a certain difference is noticeable in the novels which dickens began to write after his visit to america though it cannot be pretended that the change was an effect of his visit rather it was an effect of his maturing talent and his growing self-knowledge he was still so far from maturity that he did not create any feminine character however misshapen or idealized till he gave us mrs dombey and her mother mrs skewton in dombey and son even in these he could not tame his superabounding spirits to the work of ascertaining their nature and representing it they were in a sort characters but they were without limitations and they impersonated the frenzied excess of his fancy in the direction of the qualities ascribed to them not before david copperfield did any novel of dickens offer that last proof of ripened powers which only a true heroine attests in martin chuzzlewit which followed hard upon his return home from america and which hastily embodied in fiction the impressions of his sojourn among us there is no heroine though there are a multitude of caricatures in women's clothes and with women's names and falsetto suggestions of women's natures in the minor and meaner qualities assigned to them some of these are english and some are american and the author simple-heartedly expected that the americans would like the last because the first were quite as monstrous his error is no part of his condemnation and in fact he is not to be condemned at all for the abnormal creatures of his fancy mrs hominy and mrs major pawkins are certainly no worse than sary gamp and betsy Prig and we could once laugh equally at them all though now the laughing is more difficult than the liking our preference must be for the english inventions with which at least their inventor is more at home and whose accents he distinguishes more successfully as always the light is the light of the footlights and the setting is that of the theatre the whole affair is operated almost as openly as in the new ventriloquism of the vaudeville stage where the actor dramatist stands behind his row of puppets and with his hand now on this and now on that supplies the dialogue and imparts the appropriate action which he sometimes renders extraordinarily lifelike at the end by walking off the stage arm in arm with the principal puppet what has become of all the delight that was once in these things the fun of the printed page is no less obvious the old materials of laughter are there but somehow the convention by which we agreed to split our sides at the grotesquerie of Sarah gamp and betsy prig is disabled and in its broken condition dickens can no more make a smile than rabelais himself there must have been something in the air of that time gone from this by which he had power upon us and in every age some great novelist has like power at which the next generation incredulously wonders three it is doubtful if the pathos of little paul or florence dombey could make us cry now though it used to wring tears from all eyes and we could not find the hysterical emotion of the author in working it up a sob or a sigh too much we did not in fact blame his art in any way we who were his true lieges but were glad of all his fustian in portraying the alienation of the proud edith dombey from her arrogant husband we gratefully exulted in her design of wounding dombey in the tenderest place by eloping with his confidential man carker and then in turn mocking the hopes of the traitor and flinging his guilty love in his teeth we followed with panting eagerness every advance of the plot and gasped for breath in that high climax where mrs dombey safe away from her husband in france suddenly unmasked her hatred to her would-be paramour even yet we cannot help seeing what a tremendously telling scene it would be on the stage as the sound of carker's fastening the door resounded through the intermediate rooms and seemed to come hushed and stifled into that last one the sound of the cathedral clock striking twelve mingled with it in edith's ears she heard him pause as if he heard it too and listened and then come back towards her laying a long train of footsteps through the silence and shutting all the doors behind him as he came along her hand for a moment left the velvet chair to bring a knife within a reach upon the table then she stood as she had stood before i have never resumed carker seen you look so handsome as you do to-night he was coming gaily towards her when in an instant she caught the knife up from the table and started one pace back stand still she said or i shall murder you the sudden change in her the towering fury and intense abhorrence sparkling in her eyes and lighting up her brow made him stop as if a fire had stopped him stand still she said come no nearer me upon your life they both stood looking at each other rage and astonishment were in his face but he controlled them and said lightly come come tush we are alone and out of everybody's sight and hearing do you think to frighten me with those tricks of virtue do you think to frighten me she answered fiercely from any purpose that i have and any course i am resolved upon by reminding me of the solitude of this place and there being no help near me who am here alone designedly if i feared you should i not have avoided you if i feared you should i be here in the dead of night telling you to your face what i am going to tell do you mistake me for your husband he retorted with a grin disdaining to reply she stretched her arm out pointing to the chair he bit his lip laughed and sat down in it with an impatient air he was unable to conceal and biting his nail nervously and looking at her sideways with bitter discomfiture even while he feigned to be amused by her caprice she put the knife down upon the table and touching her bosom with her hands said i have something lying here that is no love trinket and sooner than endure your touch once more i would use it on you and you know it while i speak with less reluctance than i would on any other creeping thing that lives he affected to laugh jestingly and entreated her to act her play out quickly for the supper was growing cold but the secret look with which he regarded her was more sullen and lowering and he struck his foot once upon the floor with a muttered oath how many times said edith bending her darkest glance upon him has your bold knavery assailed me with outrage and insult how many times in your smooth manner and mocking words and looks have i been twitted with my courtship and my marriage from my marriage-day i found myself exposed to such new shame to such solicitation and pursuit expressed as clearly as if it had been written in the coarsest words and thrust into my hand at every turn from one mean villain that i felt as if i had never known humiliation till that time this shame my husband fixed upon me hemmed me round with himself steeped me in with his own hands and of his own act repeated hundreds of times and thus forced by the two from every point of rest i had driven from each to each and beset by one when i escaped the other my anger rose almost to distraction against both i do not know against which it rose higher the master or the man he watched her closely as she stood before him in the very triumph of her indignant beauty she was resolute he saw undauntable with no more fear of him than of a worm but if i tell you that the lightest touch of your hand makes my blood cold with antipathy that from the hour when i first saw and hated you to now when my instinctive repugnance is enhanced by every minute's knowledge of you i have since had you have been a loathsome creature to me which has not its like on earth how then we meet and part to-night she said you have fallen on sicilian days and sensual rest too soon edith he retorted menacing her with his hand sit down have done with this what devil possesses you their name is legion she replied uprearing her proud form as if she would have crushed him you and your master have raised them in a fruitful house and they shall tear you both in every vaunt you make i have my triumph i single out in you the meanest man i know the parasite and tool of the proud tyrant that his wound may go the deeper and may rankle more boast and revenge me on him you know how you came here to-night you know how you stand cowering there you see yourself in colours quite as despicable if not as odious as those in which i see you boast then and revenge me on yourself the foam was on his lips the wet stood on his forehead if she would have faltered once for only one half-moment he would have pinioned her but she was as firm as rock and her searching eyes never left him we don't part so he said do you think i am drivelling to let you go in your mad temper do you think she answered that i am to be stayed i'll try my dear he said with a ferocious gesture of his head god's mercy on you if you try by coming near me she replied come and his teeth fairly shone again we must make a treaty of this or i may take some unexpected course sit down sit down he did not venture to advance towards her but the door by which he had entered was behind him and he stepped back to lock it lastly take my warning look to yourself she said and smiled again you have been betrayed as all betrayers are it has been made known that you are in this place or were to be or have been if i live i saw my husband in a carriage in the street to-night strumpet it's false cried Carker. at the moment the bell rang loudly in the hall he turned white as she held her hand up like an enchantress at whose invocation the sound had come hark do you hear it Four This would be a great scene on the stage, I say, but it is in no wise the language or the attitude of life. It is not necessary to say that the whole thing is impossible almost from beginning to end, as impossibilities go, however, it is not a bad one, it is not wholly a piece of effectism the woman's hatred of her husband is imaginable enough and she might well wish to make the means of her humiliation the means of his shame but only in the theatre could the chances of worse be so successfully and triumphantly safeguarded edith dombey is the first of that deadly haughty line of heroines which dickens afterwards prolonged through many of his novels and in much of the other characterizations in dombey and son he achieved novelty and increasing verity there are no longer such mere monstrosities in the personifications each of course is furnished with a trick by which you know him or her and by this trick each is worked more or less but still the figures have greater reality and initiative they have mostly a genuine function and they contribute to the evolution of the plot by fulfilling their function they are not merely there to amuse themselves or the reader it is in the tragedy and the pathos that the author oftenest falls down as we now perceive though the time was when macaulay the historian and critic cried over florence dombey as he has himself recorded in inconsolable heartbreak this is the more wonderful because macaulay more than any other had felt the incomparable fineness of jane austen's art it must be that the critical fibre of the british public never too sensitive had been coarsened by a whole generation of romanticistic fiction until the bearing on and rubbing in of dickens was not only not an affliction but a positive delight he could not help bearing on and rubbing in even in the case so delicately imagined as that of the little girl neglected and ignored by her father he must make her a good monster as he makes the father a bad monster and as he makes monsters in their several kinds of susan nipper and miss blimber and good mrs brown and her daughter alice and mrs chick and mrs mcstinger and mrs pipchin and mrs Tootle and miss tox and the other pieces in the game they are each reduced to a single quality and propensity and then intensified out of all nature and yet in their conception they are genuine and probable enough this is especially true of mrs dombey who is for a while not overworked in her specialty of haughty revolt against her husband's hauteur she is a sincere nature and abhors the hollow husband-hunting life which the hideous old Coquette, her mother has led her and there are hints of noble tragedy in her love and pity for her husband's neglected daughter florence but the tender beauty of this reality is sacrificed to the gross ends of melodrama and edith's characterization ends in blue fire and muted violins as we have seen still she was the first semblance of a heroine that dickens had contrived Five in david copperfield there are perhaps as many monsters as in dombey and son but they are not so merely monsters and there are many more personalities the first of these is david's poor pretty young widowed mother who in her hapless second marriage is very tenderly and truly portrayed and the next are david's successive and contrasted wives Dora spenlow and agnes Wickfield mrs steerforth in her proud love of her son is also a personality so in a way is the faithful peggotty so is miss murdstone so in less measure is little emily so is miss trotwood so is rosa dartle this is not saying that these personalities are not every one overdone and at times each carried to the verge of monstrosity but the autobiographical form of the novel seems somehow to have held the author in check and saved him in some measure from his besetting sin of excess it remains the best of his novels the shapeliest the sanest and the necessity which he was in through the form of working out character inductively kept him truer to what he had seen of life in no other book probably did he draw so much and so directly from life it was autobiographical in fact as well as in form and it was biographical through the introduction with little disguise of dickens's father and family circumstance through subsequent study of its origins the point where the fiction begins in most cases has been ascertained but there's always a borderland where such figures move unconscious whether they are quite fiction or fact no doubt they are always much more fiction than fact the autobiography of david copperfield is so transmuted that it is no longer dickens's autobiography and probably if there was any living original for dora spenlow dora spenlow bears her far less allegiance than flora casby in our mutual friend bears dora spenlow whom dickens ultimated in her all this does not in the least matter the question is of the treatment of such a nature as dora's and the affair being that of a first love in which anything fantastic may happen the answer to the question seems to be that the author has given us here perhaps his first entirely living heroine it is one of the saving facts concerning a talent who left his adorers several things to regret that he had beyond any other novelist the inspiration of innocent young girlhood at times it was almost little girlhood that inspired him so sexless do such natures or supernatures as florence dombey and esther summerson and little Dorrit appear he predicates marriage of them and contrives a shadowy wooing for them however incredibly and almost shockingly but dora has sex and the witchery of it childish and slight as she is she is a woman with a woman's not an angel's charm she is not more innocent than david himself and she is quite as passionately in love in their mutually innocent way as he she is as immediately in love and wants him as badly as he wants her i do not know in all fictional purer study of young love of the entirely human sort than their courtship and it is a pity that it has to go off into the pathos of her early death after her marriage it is true that it was no true solution of life's problem for david and in the background all the while is agnes wickfield waiting for her innings but a truer art than dickens's or dickens's time these things are apparently chronicle rather than personal in great measure would have recognized a higher duty than the reader's comfort in the situation a child-wife is really quite as likely to live as to die and she is apt to outlive her husband and to marry again this was what david's mother did and it might have been better for fiction to testify merely of the indefinitely continued marriage of the young lovers that might not have done so badly david was good and dora after all though she was spoiled was sweet and of a final good sense end of section twelve